Welcome to Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I'm the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year I have the pleasure of attending events to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as I go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand, from lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering to some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. This week, we are proud to announce our newest association ambassador, Libby Trickett. A former Australian swimmer, Libby collected 24 gold medals on the international stage across Olympic, Commonwealth Games and World Championship events. This included eight long course and seven short course world titles, five Commonwealth Games and four Olympic gold medals, which were won at three consecutive Olympic Games. After her retirement and following the birth of her firstborn child, Libby suffered from postnatal depression which was further exacerbated by the loss of a rigid training support structure. Since retiring, Libby has dabbled in TV uh, sales and marketing role for a technology company and worked as a radio announcer for Triple M in Brisbane. She's also committed to pursuing her work in mental health, publishing her memoir Beneath the Surface, as well as taking care of three young daughters, Poppy, Edwina and Bronte. Listen in this week as Libby and I discuss her career highs as well as the mental health challenges around being a professional athlete, her transition into retirement, challenges with motherhood, her experience with postnatal depression, and the steps she has taken and plans to take to prioritise her mental health. Welcome to the four-time Olympic gold medalist and former world champion, Golden Girl the Pool, with an, a trademark smile that is super infectious, uh, and also a person that's inspired many, uh, not only in the pool, but now with her courage and openness of sharing her personal challenges and struggles with mental ill health over the years, uh, more recently, but also our newest member of the Australian New Zealand Mental Health Advisory Board, Libby Trickett. Thanks very much for joining me on today's episode. Thank you so much for having me. I just think it's so important in society to, to start normalising these conversations and my, my pleasure to be able to chat about it and have different perspectives and different voices and different stories um, because I think everybody's experiences are so different and if you can help someone by sharing your own, um, then I think we're all better off for that. It all started for you in Townsville uh, and I hear that you loved uh, love water and love swimming from a young age, uh, even to, I think, wanting to compete in your first rate at the age of four. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm the youngest of four kids, so whenever my brother and sisters were doing their swimming lessons at either the Brook Memorial Pool up there or the Kokoda Pool in Townsville. I was just always there in the baby pool trying to copy what they were doing until I actually had my own lessons. And, uh, yeah, joined my first club when I was four. And basically from that moment that I got to have my first club night race, um, I just loved it. I just loved being in the water first and foremost. But then the idea that I could go fast. And then, you know, can I go faster the next time that I get to dive in and, and have a race? So fell in love very, very quickly, very early on uh, with swimming, which yeah has yeah been such a huge part of my life for basically my entire life now. What was uh, what was it like growing up in Townsville? It was um, I I was a very active kid. I basically did any sport that I could possibly do. I loved being outdoors and using my body in any which way that I possibly could. In terms of family, my parents divorced when I was ten, and then we moved to Brisbane. Uh, my mum and my siblings moved to Brisbane, and it was challenging in that my um, father wasn't really part of our lives very much um, from that time on and my mum was a single mother of all very very different (laughs) sometimes very challenging children and yeah sort of had to go it alone in a lot of it and that obviously took its toll on our family in different ways but for the most part I was very uh, lucky in terms of the opportunities that I was given particularly around my my swimming 
which, you know, obviously now (laughs) getting to look back on my life and where I'm at now, I'm very grateful for because without those opportunities, uh, well, you know, having having the opportunity to move to Brisbane and, and have some wonderful coaches and have access to that sort of competition side of things has, you know, contributed greatly to my life. Well, your mum uh, must have certainly been some sort of superwoman to move down to Brizzy uh, with, uh, I think you're the youngest, so I guess the your older siblings would have been between, uh, what, 13 and 20 at the time? Yeah, so I was 10 and my older sister was 17. Uh, my next sister was 15 and then my brother was 14. So, yeah, it was a pretty challenging time. Um, I, yeah, went into primary school and then um, my older siblings, went into high school and my older sister went into um, some taste study and it was you know I think moving city for any family is is always challenging and certainly um, we were no different in that and then you know obviously adding to the transition into a divorced parent family and trying to navigate those difficult relationships and becomes yeah, it was tough. I don't know how my mum did it, to be yeah. perfectly honest. Now being a, a mother of, of three young children and having a very supportive uh, a husband and, and partner. So it's, I fully admire what my mum was able to do under what could only be just in incredibly difficult circumstances for her as a, as a parent. Well, you made it to got into competitive swimming once you moved down to Brisbane. Is that correct? A bit more so? More training? Yeah, well, I... I kind of was swimming um, my whole life and part of what we did growing up was going to different sort of carnivals every weekend, being in Townsville. You travelled a fair bit with those competitions. So, you know, we travelled all around North Queensland to have different uh, races, which was one of the joys that I had growing up. I absolutely loved that. Uh, But certainly once I got to Brisbane, I was able to have even more high-quality competitions and I think my swimming started to slowly progress. To be honest, though, I, it wasn't until I was about 15 when I realized that I actually had to start training hard. <laughs> yeah. And that might actually positively impact my performance when it came to racing. But once I made that realization, that's when things really started to progress for me in my swimming, for sure. Are you saying you're one of those lucky people that don't have to train and they were just winning every race? Absolutely not. I was, <laughs> man, I, I was uh, a growing, massive. Uh, growing up was hard to compete against those people. You're like, oh, they never oh, no, they put in they the work and the they work. always win. So um, Right? No, super frustrating. <laughs> I was not one of those people. I was a bludger, yes, but I wasn't winning. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. okay. <laughs> it was because um, I started competing against some wonderful athletes who were training the house down at the same age and you know, they were consistently winning all of the races. And I was definitely mixing it. I was definitely coming third a lot of the time. But it wasn't until I actually made that connection that if I trained hard, then I could actually potentially win or do a personal best time. And that for me was just a light bulb because I wanted to win. I was super competitive. I wanted to touch the wall first. And anything that might get me closer to doing that was really exciting to me. When, when did you know that this was something as a career, like you wanted to actually pursue it and you weren't stopping until you got it? Was it, was it when you were 15 or was it when you were a bit later on in life, 17? You know, it's a really good question because I, throughout my swimming career, I don't ever remember properly thinking that I wanted to make the Australian team. I just knew that I loved swimming and I knew that I loved competing and I loved pushing my body and seeing what it was physically capable of. Those were the things that really just drew me in and made me laser focused on what I was doing. But it's funny because I looked back, I found some random old things from when I was at primary school and I had written this story about (laughs) a plane crash of all things, but I had to swim to shore (laughs) and then I went to swim at the Olympics because that's where I was going on my plane and I and I won the butterfly event in this particular story and it's so funny because I do not remember having that thought at I was probably about eight or nine at that stage but it's pretty remarkable looking back on that because you know obviously that was something that thinking about I don't know was in me somehow um that kind of made me excited and you know, obviously loved my swimming from a very young age, but 
I never properly thought that I had the potential to make the Australian team until I was about 17 and I made a, a junior Australian team and I took a kind of crazy step of having a gap year as soon as I finished high school to mm-hmm. focus on my swimming to see if I could make the Australian team and just focus on my swimming, which was kind of a scary thing to kind of go all yeah. in. But I knew that if I was going to do it, I'd have to give it a crack. And that was, for me, the time to sort of do it. And it was a good, it paid off. Certainly <laughs> did. Risk, I guess. Certainly did. And I guess out of that story that you wrote when you were eight or nine years old, uh, out of all the things that come true, we're all glad that it was just the uh, the Olympic gold. In yes, the exactly. Not, not so much the plane crash. So, <laughs> I have to say, I was very dramatic as a child, <laughs> writing very dramatic stories. But yes, the, the part about the Olympics and and specifically the butterfly event because that just was blew my mind back in the day that I I wrote that and probably twenty years later almost it it came true. It's crazy. Libby, your first Olympics was at the age of 19 in Athens, and I'm sure there was uh, it wasn't smooth sailing to get there, but tell us about that experience of being able to go to Athens and compete for Australia, your country, at such a young age. Yeah, it was amazing. It's what you know I had set my sights on and was slowly working towards doing, and to do it by kind of breaking the world record at the trials that year and cutting so much time off my personal best and to then be counted as one of one of the best in the world at that at just 19 and only my second Australian team was just completely mind blowing. It was just totally unbelievable to me that I could be in that position. But it was a it was a, um, a roller coaster ride of an experience, if I'm honest, as probably all of my Olympic experiences were. You know, nothing was straightforward, and I think that probably has resonated with me. You know, long after I've I've finished swimming because I think you realize that nothing in life is straightforward it's a pretty big roller coaster everyone's experiences in different ways and yeah it was I think a really important step for me to recognize not to become complacent that you're just not kind of gifted these achievements and that you're going to have to really focus and and be resilient I think in the face of high pressure situations and really high expectations that I placed on myself and and also dealing with um, external expectations as well and understanding that I can't take on board what other people might think or what other people might be expecting of me. I have to just work with myself and my team and my family and my loved ones and and that's what's the most important thing um, in that regard. So yeah, certainly was a massive surprise to walk away from the first day of competition, my first Olympics at just 19, to walk away with a gold medal in the 4x1 freestyle relay and a world record and to share that with three other amazing Australian women with Patria Thomas, Alice Mills and um, Joni Henry. Yeah. But then, you know, a few days later to completely miss the 100 freestyle final was just devastating. It was uh, like the sort of forward sort of fallen out from underneath me and I was completely depleted emotionally so angry at myself for in my mind completely screwing up my race and uh, and then you know a few days later after that being able to rally and refocus and I guess get myself back up again to win a bronze medal in the 50 freestyle was something that I was really proud of and all of that experience made me hungry to to keep pushing and to keep working and hopefully continue to mix it with some of the best in the world. And that you did. And, uh, I mean, if we, t- if we touch on, as an Olympian, I mean, the traits and characteristics to be mentally strong. What I mean, what are some of the things, I mean, you must have to be such a competitor and have that uh, innate drive within you, and you certainly sound like you have that. Tell us about some of the, the traits that it takes to be uh, an Olympian. Yeah, it's a really good question, and I don't, regard myself as someone who's particularly special in any particular way I think for me the thing is that I found something that I loved and was really passionate about and through that passion I found a drive and a really intense laser focus I think a lot of people are perfectionists and expect a lot of themselves And then I was just able, and that's certainly true for me, and I think through that I was just able to apply myself really well in something that I really just bloody loved. (laughs) 
but certainly within that, you know, there's high expectations that you're dealing with. There's, you know, as I mentioned, high pressure environments and you get 53 seconds every four years to achieve a, a dream that you might have had for your entire life. So certainly very high pressure situations that you, you face at, at a really young age as well when you're still yeah. developing as an individual and who you want to be as a person and who you want to be when you grow up. So it's a lot that you are taking on in different ways. And I think most people have the ability to be resilient. And, and part of that for me, I think, is just continuing to move forward, even if it's slowly, even if it doesn't feel like you're actually making any progress, but to keep getting up every single day and, and doing what you can that day. And some days you can do a lot and some days it's not very much. And some days it almost feels like you're, you're standing still. But I just, I felt like I was able to keep pushing myself because I had the underlying foundation of, of love and passion for what I was doing. And and a lot of the pressure, is it a lot of, uh, would you say it's mostly pressure you put on yourself or or do you think it's sort of 50-50 with the external pressures? I mean, where where does that sit in terms of the pressure that you go through as an athlete? I, I don't think it's 50-50. I think... It, it predominantly for me was certainly pressure I put on myself to perform and and to reach that highest pinnacle because at the end of the day, nobody ever really minds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, nobody really cares what you're doing with your life. You know, it's a pressure that I put on myself and certainly a pressure that I thought people were putting on me. And not that they were putting pressure on, but, you know, you wanted to make people proud and you wanted to there were so many people who contributed to my swimming career who I would not have been able to achieve what I did if it weren't for them. You know, my coach, my, um, you know, sports scientist, massage therapist, physiotherapist, you know, the entire Swimming Australia team, my mum who has spent, you know, (laughs) millions of hours sitting beside the pool or driving me to and from pools to be able to achieve what I did. And then as I got older, my husband who helped with everything in terms of my training and competing so many hours by so many people that you want to make proud and that was a big thing for me I wanted people to be proud of the work that they did with me and and the work you know and the outcome of what we worked on together so I think mostly it was internal pressure from myself but you know then there's certainly the external pressure of growing up in a way in in front of the media spotlight and and recognizing that you actually can't control what people in the media or in society expect of you because ultimately they don't actually know what you've done (laughs) i could have been sitting on my butt for the entire preparation and not actually be ready to race at all but they don't know that they can still say that oh she should win seven gold medals at this particular competition (laughs) does that that um, take some time though to get used to and have that mindset because i imagine being a young athlete you wouldn't know that would you first up no gosh no it's it's a process of of growth for sure i think i probably made that realization when i when it was in 2006 at the commonwealth games and i was heading into the melbourne competition uh, and they and literally the media were saying that i was going to win seven gold medals at this particular event and that was despite the fact that I actually hadn't even competed in the 200 freestyle at an international competition before. It was despite the fact that I hadn't won a number of those events prior to this, that competition in Melbourne. And it was really interesting because they can just put this arbitrary pressure on you without, yeah, without any yeah. substance, well, to, be, to, to that, be perfectly frank. Prior to that, you would have been happy with, you know, whatever it is you were going to be happy with as your results. And then all of a sudden you see this, get thrown out there in the meeting and think, oh, hang on, maybe I should be. Yeah, anything less than that becomes almost a failure and it seems ridiculous. And and first day of competition, I I placed second in the 200 freestyle. So I think in a way that was a blessing in disguise because it took that pressure away because I obviously wasn't going to win seven gold medals at that particular event. And that was almost a a weight off off the shoulders to be able to just then swim freely and, Whatever I achieved after that was only going to be, I think, a wonderful thing. And certainly my coach and I didn't go into the Commonwealth Games 
thinking I was going to win seven gold medals. That wasn't the goal for me at all. So no, no. <laughs> um, I, it was still a successful meet in my mind. That public perception and your personal goals obviously seem to be quite different. And But, I mean, it's great to be able to experience that at a, the young age that you were. I mean, 06, I think you were still only 21 years old. So, yeah, 21. Uh, Correct. <laughs> what a great lesson and, and something to take from it. But tell us about mental health of a professional athlete. I mean, what some things that you did to, to maintain a healthy mindset throughout your journey as an Olympic athlete? Yeah, such a, an interesting topic because on some level, for me personally, and I think it's probably true for a lot of athletes, is that we're constantly striving for ourselves to be enough. And I think the feeling that we aren't enough is a lot of, well, it's a lot of what drove me. I wanted to be better and I wanted to be the best and that was going to give me something and, and that allowed me to stay focused and driven and passionate about what I was doing for years and <laughs> years on end and obviously that's not a healthy mindset yeah. in any way that you look at it but I think also that's what helped me be the athlete that I was so I'm grateful to have that perspective now that I am enough in whatever I do and but I still think that that actually did help me drive more and more so it's, it's a funny thing because I think I know that I was incredibly intense as an athlete incredibly focused and driven and had a voice that was driving me to try and be better continually be better about managing that I think on some level you want a little bit of that because that helps that fire in your tummy just to, to keep pushing but if you have too much of it it's completely detrimental to your mental health so it's a very it's a real balancing act and I don't think I necessarily got it right at all during my swimming career yeah but I'm grateful for that perspective that I have on it now and I think it's helped me become the person that I am at 35 and that's something that I'm really grateful for. And did you have uh, any mental health challenges when you were competing as, uh, as an Olympian? Not well. Athlete? So in 2007, I probably had what I can now look back and say that was a, a depressive period. It was after the World Championships in 2007. I had my best meet to date. I won five gold medals at the World Championships that year. A couple of days later, I raced Michael Phelps and unofficially broke 53 seconds for the 100 freestyle, um, breaking, unofficially breaking the world record. And, um, wow. and then a couple of days after that, I got married. So it was this really high intense emotional period of time over a period of two weeks and off the back of that I had quite a lot of media coverage yeah. and it was probably the first time that I started to get uh, not negative but it felt negative to me at the time press coverage because I had sold my wedding story to a magazine and so other media outlets were sort of slamming me for lack of a better word uh, about that decision and you know at 22 years of age that was uh, a really full-on thing to kind of go through and yeah. I ended up having quite a few negative things come through from just the general population and that for me was devastating <laughs> because you know I have this mindset already of not being enough and, and not being to, good. And wanting to please everybody else as well. Right? And wanting to please everybody. And then there's this situation arises and people in the general population are basically telling me that I'm not good and that I'm, you know, a bad person. And so it's all of my worst fears realized. And so I went through a period of time, probably about three months after that, where I went through a I definitely went through some sort of depressive period. I didn't want to go to training. I didn't end up going on a, a team that I was supposed to go away on to do some racing practice. And I found it really, really difficult. But 
when you're less than 12 months out at that stage to the, the next Olympic Games, you kind of don't have time to really reflect and dig in yeah. <laughs> through all of those emotional things and that baggage that you might be carrying from, from life. So I had to kind of just pull my socks up and <laughs> push it deep, deep down <laughs> and just keep, keep on keeping on basically and get back into training because I had something, I had an opportunity that I was wanting to prepare for. But I think, to be honest, when you're training 35 hours a week and you have such a high level of happy hormones from all of that exercise, as much as you're exhausted from all that exercise, you also have an abundance of you know, serotonin and yeah. all of these amazing things coursing through your body that, that probably masks a lot of things. And also with that attitude of being an athlete, you just kind of have to keep on pushing. You don't really dig into those difficult things. So it really didn't start to I think really come to the to a head until 2010 when I retired for the first time and looking back now Libby like I mean if you were competing today and hindsight's a wonderful thing but Mm. would you do anything differently to take care of your mental health yeah it's a really I've reflected on that a lot recently because there's part of me that wishes that I could compete now with the brain and the experience and the perspective that I have now as a, as a 35-year-old and the life that I've lived because when you are going through it at 17, 18 to your early, mid-20s, you've not lived a lot of life and you haven't had a lot of life experiences, you know, that's in general, that's a generalisation, obviously, but it, you definitely live in a bubble in a lot of ways. So your world is very small. And I wish that I could have the the physical attributes that I had when you're 20 (laughs) and the brain that I have now because I think I would be a better competitor with that perspective. And I've certainly seen that with other athletes who have either, you know, come back as as mature age athletes, I guess you would call them, um, because they're exceptional in terms of where they expend their energy, emotions. They're really sort of targeted on the training that they do yeah it's really interesting I, I i wish i could have done things differently in a lot of ways but at the same time you do what you know yeah. and you learn as as you're going along through life so i don't think i could have done anything differently uh, certainly there are loads of mistakes and loads of things that i wish could have been different but at the end of the day that that forms part of my my career and my learning and my experiences and as much as I wish I could have won the 100 freestyle at 2008 Beijing Games or you know even in Athens that wasn't meant to happen for whatever reason and you take so many lessons from those disappointing I mean I've learned so much more from the disappointing moments in my career than I ever did from those successful moments but it's funny now looking back on the things that you wish were different but I'm so yeah. grateful that they happen as they do because I've become who I am. And that sounds really cliche for <laughs> me. Yeah, but it's, but, I, feel, I really feel that it's true for me. So, yeah, so true. And uh, I mean, if, if we look at throughout your career, uh, you touched on one of them, Silver at, uh, in Beijing for the 100 freestyle. And then I think another event uh, you mentioned as a bit of a low light for you was the failed mm. drug test in 2012. Um, when the testosterone levels were uh, higher than expected, which you'd always had, as you rightly pointed out, mm. and, and end up getting um, getting off those uh, charges. But, I mean, did, did you feel like, were they impactful uh, on your life, those events, personally? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, the story that you're talking about there, that was in 2006, actually, and that was straight off the back of the Commonwealth Games. And before and I before that competition, there had already been speculation that I was looking stronger. And I have to put that down to going from a young girl to being a woman yeah. <laughs> at that stage, and my body had developed and gotten stronger, and I'd been working my butt off for probably three years, four years at that point. So, yeah, it's an interesting thing and especially when that's so outside of your control and certain external factors, like they had changed the um, acceptable level of testosterone 
to a different, uh, to a lower level at this particular competition for some reason. And then they looked back at all of my previous drug tests, which there was multiples over the previous four or five years to that stage. And they were all exactly the same. So to, to get off, you know, and, and for it never to have made the, the media, thankfully, I, I don't know how I would have ever been able to, to cope with that if that ever got somehow leaked, which it did for Ian Thorpe. He had a similar situation, I, I believe, and that got leaked, unfortunately, to the to the media. And, and that's just really difficult to, to, I just can't even imagine having to have gone through that. It was difficult to go through it in private, let alone... Yeah. Um, managing that in public but the the silver medal in in Beijing I think that was probably one of the main defining moments of my my swimming career and at the time it was once again it was just devastating I just could not believe that I had screwed up this opportunity you know that one opportunity that you get every four years and you know I may never get that chance again I didn't know whether I would get that chance again at that stage and I was completely gutted but again with time and and perspective I I look back at that moment and I won a silver medal at the Olympic Games I was the second best athlete um in the world at that stage and it's kind of funny to to look back on that and to think about it but you know when I watched that race I am immediately transported to that time and feel those emotions and it's still is incredibly difficult to think about how I was feeling at that time because I was just so upset, so angry. I was so frustrated. It's really interesting to sort of have that perspective but still be able to feel all of those emotions from that time so acutely. Libby, tell me about the coaches throughout your career. I mean, how influential were they? um, They're so important. I think whenever you – they're essentially mentors put it in a, a business sort of terminology. They're my manager, they're my mentor, they they play so many important fundamental roles. Your teacher and for me having, uh, you know, ha- coming from a divorced family and not really having a strong fi- uh, male figure in my life, uh, particularly at, at first, Stefan, who was my first coach who allowed me to make the Australian team for the first time and to be honest I had most of my swimming success with he was very much a father figure of my life someone I kind of had this very quiet belief in myself that I might be able to do something really cool in the sport but I didn't know how to to do that I didn't know what the steps were that I would have to take to achieve what I wanted to achieve so I need I was going to need somebody else and then to have Stefan show a belief in me that was you know, not someone from my immediate circle, that wasn't from my family, was remarkable. I, I mean to have someone else not only action like they believe in you, but to actually say they believe in your ability, they believe in your um, strength as a person. Your, your physical strength, your mental strength, that you might be able to achieve something really cool in the sport. That was, yeah, groundbreaking for me because I didn't think that that was possible. I kind of just thought it was just me <laughs> thinking that I might be able to do something really cool. And thankfully, not only did he believe in my ability, but he was an exceptional coach. And not only was he an exceptional technical coach, but the way that he worked really, I think, contrasted my personality in a really positive way because he wasn't as emotional as I was. He was kind of very clinical and very emotionless. I think he wished we were robots in all the ways who didn't have emotions. But because he didn't get sort of ride the waves of of emotions like I did, he was just very matter-of-fact and sort of really pushed me through those sort of emotional moments that I would experience. Although there there were moments that that was not ideal certainly, yeah. but I think 98% of the time, it was exactly what I needed. Libby, tell us about the, the transition period. So, uh, I mean, it's, it seems to be sometimes unspoken, but I mean, sometimes spoken when uh, high profile athletes uh, go from the top of their career in most cases, and then all of a sudden they retire and have to almost reinvent themselves or create a new identity. <laughs> I mean, tell me about that. Yeah, it's um, it's actually something that I've been reflecting on a lot the last few days, actually. 
because it's been seven years since, or just over seven years since I retired from swimming due to injury. I actually had every intention on trying to achieve a, a fourth Olympic Games and go to Rio 2016 and kind of to continue to pursue swimming. And then to be a bit blindsided by a major wrist injury and after having already had almost 12 months out of the water in my first retirement and uh, yeah, I just knew that I wasn't going to be able to physically get back to the level that I wanted to get back to. And that's really confronting because most of your time as an athlete, you're fairly egoic and you're like, well, I can be the best in the world. (laughs) Why can't I do that? And then you kind of realize that that time might be over which is obviously confronting in in that perspective. But for me, it it really feels like over the last seven years, I've had to continuously reinvent myself and that into retirement, that's into different job roles that I've had, you know, whether it be in a marketing role for a technology company or a radio announcer on an afternoon drive show for a period of time, uh, into a working mother of, one child into a working mother of two children and then into a stay-at-home mom of two children and now a stay-at-home mom of three children. It just has felt constant in terms of the reinvention and the almost the redefinition on who you are and who you want to be and balancing that with the patience you need if there are things outside of maybe your family life that you want to achieve. And then the things that you want to achieve within your family life and balancing that and understanding what your priorities are at different times, that's really difficult to sort of navigate. Was there a difference between, I mean, you briefly, you retired for 12 months in 2009, I believe, and then forced to retirement 2013 through your injury. Was there a difference between each time that you decided to give it up? Was it... Did it feel better the second time around and more complete? Very different. In 2009, I was I was burnt out from the sport. I was tired. Yeah. I wanted to see what the rest of the world, what the real world was like and really knuckle down and, and see what I could achieve outside of the sport. I really felt strongly that I didn't want to just be Libby Trickett the swimmer yeah. <laughs> my whole life. I don't know why I felt like that, but I've, I've always wanted to show that there are other parts to who I was and I mean that in itself has been a process to understand that people may always know me as Libby Trickett the swimmer and that's okay and and that's uh, you know that's totally fine but there was certainly a period of time after my second retirement where it was kind of taken out of my hands but to be honest that was probably a blessing in disguise because I don't know if I would have ever after the experience of my first retirement and how difficult that was I don't know that I would have very readily made a decision myself um, to leave the sport again. So it was probably a blessing in disguise. I felt more ready for what was to come in that respect because I had been through it and I knew to be patient with myself. But having said that, nothing really prepares you for the challenges in terms of financially, your sort of earning capacity falls off a cliff and you know, you're, you're trying to work out actually what you want to do and who you want to be and what you want to sort of sink your teeth into, but you're kind of having to do a lot of work just to earn money. <laughs> and that wasn't necessarily the work that filled my cup and made me really excited and passionate. I did have the opportunity to do while I was swimming to try other things, but I chose to focus on my swimming because I had that capacity because I was earning money through sponsorships and et cetera, uh, all those sorts of things. Yeah. But I wish I had tried different things. I was studying, you know, to actually go and do an internship somewhere or um, get some work experience I think would have been valuable because I kind of feel like the last seven years for me has been lots of <laughs> work experience and, <laughs> and internships to sort of see what I want to do with the rest of my life. Because at the end of the day, I am only 35 and kids are very small now and they're the priority. But I also, I know that there's more for me for the rest of my life. So it's an interesting dynamic, but it's it's certainly challenging at times. Absolutely. But I mean, even um, separate to the emotional side of retiring, I guess, uh, and the identity side, there would also be some sort of challenge in, in the respect of 
being somewhat a professional athlete for some for the better part of say 10 years where all of a sudden you have no coach yelling at you or telling you what to do each day and, and the structure of your days all of a sudden are just you freed up was, uh, it, was that yeah. was that difficult as well like physically <laughs> yeah. to go through that no for sure that's actually probably that having no structure having to decide my own routine not being told exactly what to do i was one of the best athletes and being told what to do and doing it really well and yes. and going beyond that and doing some more of my own stuff but if you told me what to do i would bloody do it and i would nail it yeah. <laughs> and i miss that i being an adult you don't get that anymore <laughs> i'm like sometimes now i just tell me what to do and i will do that exact thing and i think i would be a lot happier <laughs> in a lot of ways if i was told what to do because I, I don't know that's my personality i guess but also not having easily clearly defined goals yeah. has been one of the biggest challenges for me as well because when you're an athlete it's so black and white you know it's you want to make the Australian team, you want to do a certain time or breaking it down even further to everyday goals. You want to hold a certain average in training or you want to go point two faster in a 15 metre underwater streamline. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever it might be, you can really break down the very clear defined goals. It's all and measurable. It's really measurable. Whereas in the real world, that just does not exist. It's, you can get to the same endpoint in a hundred different ways and you might start walking down the path of heading towards that particular goal and then you realize that that might not exactly be what you want to do and so you sort of veer off on it. so it's a constant um reassessment of what you are working towards and what your goals are and so that's been yeah really those two things have been i think a real process for me to to work through and feel confident now that i i know what i'm working towards and i'm comfortable enough in understanding that you can reassess your goals yeah even if you haven't necessarily achieved exactly what you're working towards that doesn't mean you're not achieving anything and that's been a good development over the past probably 18 months i think but libby would you say that it's something that you have to go through yourself or or, or do you think now knowing where you want to go now and have the defined goals i mean do you think that's something that you can readily and easily tell someone that's retiring tomorrow oh this is what you got to do or do you feel like you got to go through it to a certain degree i think you can give them an understanding of what could happen and how they might feel and if they do feel any of those things that's so normal but then by the same token, their experience might be completely different. So for my husband, who also retired from swimming, although never reached the same sort of levels as, as what I did, he still reached an elite level of sport. Yes. His transition into the real world was much better because he was already working sort of in the area that he wanted to work in. He already had a passion outside of the pool and sort of, slowly making his way towards those goals. So yeah. the biggest thing that I would encourage any athlete to do before they retire is to start trying different things as best as they can. Because it's, again, it's a balance because you want to be able to just Compete. completely focus 100% on your sport and be an athlete and train the house down and then be able to just spend your time recovering because that's what's going to allow you to achieve your goals in whatever shape they take. But if they can start to get an understanding of what their interests are and what they might even just the field of what they want to be working towards and, and spending some time perhaps during those uh, breaks, those mini breaks that we get <laughs> as athletes. Yeah. But, you know, spending some time during those uh, down periods where they can do a little internship or some work experience or do a little bit of study to see if that stuff interests them. I think that's really important because I think that does tend to make that transition just a little bit easier because all of those things will still be true for them you know the lack of routine the not necessarily black and white goals anymore the lack of social support from your peers who you spent so much of your time working with all of that will fall away but to have this thing that they have been working on that fills them up and they're excited about outside of the sport then that's certainly going to make that transition a little bit easier but ultimately yeah everyone is so individual with those experiences 
Yeah, 100%. Couldn't agree with you more there. If, if we go to now life as a mother, it's something that there's, I mean, I guess there's many books on it, but at the end of the day, everyone has to go through their own journey and their own experience. Mm. So tell me, I'm aware that you had a, a miscarriage in 2014, just prior to mm. Poppy being born in August 15. That must be such a traumatic event to go through. Yeah, and at the time I just, I just wasn't aware of it and I don't think it's, I think it's really starting to be spoken about a lot more, which I think is so important because you kind of feel very alone and like you've done something wrong when you miscarry and it was one of those things because it was an early, it was a miss, what they call a missed miscarriage. So we found out I had a, had a scan and there was a heartbeat and everything seemed to be tracking well and then at the following appointment, I had another scan and there was no heartbeat. So I um, had no symptoms that we were having any issues with the baby, but it was completely blindsided me. I think especially when you've seen a heartbeat and everything seems to be tracking well, that becomes just unimaginable that that might happen. So, And I just felt so guilty for such a long time and as though my body's was wrong somehow and I must have caused it and obviously none of that is true and certainly with the more information that I and knowledge that I have now unfortunately one of all pregnancies will end in miscarriage and there's so much pregnancy loss that people experience and then I started to feel really guilty <laughs> that I felt so bad and so sad having lost the baby at eight weeks and there are people who lose the baby at much further along in, yeah. in the pregnancy, even, you know, right at the end of pregnancy. And I just, that was unimaginable to me as well. So kind of <laughs> went through stages of, of different ways to make myself feel bad and, and feel really sad about what um, had happened. And ultimately, that just unfortunately was what was going to be the experience for, for that particular pregnancy. And, you know, fortunately, we fell pregnant with Poppy not too long, not too many months later. And I'm very grateful for that as well. It's an interesting experience going from being an athlete and being completely in control of your body and then <laughs> having a miscarriage and then being pregnant and having com absolutely no control over your body. <laughs> yeah. so once again, it's, um, yeah, very, very full on experience. It's you've been very public about your experience with postnatal depression, and I believe it sort of all came to a head around four months after Poppy was born. You was described as a breakdown on the way to the gym uh, where you were screaming for twenty five minutes. And looking back at it now, and the signs and, and the symptoms of postnatal depression, can you see that it started much earlier than that? Yeah, it's, I think reflecting on on that period of time for the first four months, it's a difficult time when you're transitioning to having your first baby because it's everything is new, everything is foreign. I feel like you just you have decision fatigue because you're having to make all of these new decisions that you've never had to make before and are they hungry or are they um, tired <laughs> or, uh, yeah, yeah, are they teething? Are, are they sick? You know, do you have to take them to the doctor? Are they tired again? So many different challenges <laughs> every single day as a, as a new parent. And that's something that I found difficult because I spent the majority of my adult life deciding what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it and working on my own goals yeah. <laughs> to my own um, rhythm of my day, being able to sleep whenever I wanted. And <laughs> the first four months were hard. She didn't, Poppy didn't like to nap during the day, but she was okay overnight. She was probably around four or six weeks, she was sleeping eight to 10 hours a night. And I'm like, nailing it. <laughs> obviously, first time parenthood. And killing I don't know, but I'm obviously killing it because, <laughs> you know, she's sleeping pretty well at night. And, you know, I, I think my smugness really got me. Uh, <laughs> I screwed myself over by being smug because I was like, maybe I should write a book that like this parenting thing's not so hard. She's cranky during the day, but that's okay. She's sleeping. And then at the four-month mark, she had, I guess what you would call a, a four-month sleep regression. She just stopped sleeping. She went from sleeping eight to ten hours a night to for a period of four months, she was waking every 45 minutes 
overnight. And I don't know, this, you can't ever prepare for that amount of sleep deprivation. It, it takes its toll physically and more importantly, it takes its toll mentally. And when you're already having to make a thousand new decisions every single day to add that deprivation of sleep uh, was just, yeah, it was bone-achingly exhausting. And I found it really, really difficult to manage that period of time. What you realise is that no matter what sort of baby you have, it's a difficult time. <laughs> it's a really difficult transition into parenthood. And I've, I've definitely felt that most acutely during the, the transition into my first baby. But then when you add that sleep deprivation, and for me, certainly coming from a background of being very much in control of my life and being yeah. very much in control of what I was doing, and then you have this tiny little baby who's like dictating everything in your life, it's really confronting and you feel really out of control. And that was really difficult. And what I found quite striking, I guess, during that time is that I had no idea that anger was could be a sign of depression. And obviously during that time, postnatal depression, I had no idea that that wasn't, not that it wasn't normal. I knew that it wasn't normal for me, but I had no idea that that was, could be one of the only signs of um a, a mental illness and that was certainly true for me I like I felt very out of control of my emotions I felt but mostly I felt angry yeah. <laughs> and it, it it certainly came to a head when Poppy was as you mentioned at that eight month point and I was trying to do self-care and I was <laughs> driving to the gym to you know look time. after my yeah. yeah, get some me time, have some physical activity because I know that makes me feel better mentally. And I, I learnt that during my first time at been swimming where I completely abstained from all exercise because I was like, I'm done with exercise. No more <laughs> exercising for me. And I've retired from Then my mental health suffered and I, I that was probably the biggest and most important lessons I learnt during that time. So, you know, I was trying to, to be good and, and take care of myself and Poppy just, hated the car at that point I all at all stages at all oh, sorry at some stage all of my kids hated the car but she was really going through a point where she just hated being in the car and as soon as I put her in a car seat she started screaming yeah. and I felt like I just completely broke I, I don't know it's like my my brain literally broke in that moment and spent the next 25 minutes of the trip to, to the gym just absolutely screaming at this little baby who wasn't doing anything wrong in particular, just wanting whatever she needed. <laughs> yeah. It's always hard to know what they want at that point, but, um, you know, she wanted something. And I felt so overwhelmed with anger and frustration and just, as though my life would never be the same again. And, you know, it's true. Your life will never be the same again. But I couldn't accept it at that point and felt really overwhelmed. And, yeah, as soon as I got to the gym, I realized that I can't, I couldn't remember that trip, that yeah. drive. I couldn't remember, you know, making the turns or the stopping at the lights. It was just all a complete blur. And when I arrived at the gym, I, I got really scared that for my safety and for my baby's safety that was and when I felt that yeah that was really confronting because I am someone who although I am emotional and I have had mental illness issues in the past I have always felt fairly strong emotionally and not like I would ever hurt another human being let alone my own child and that felt really confronting to know that I could have had very easily had a car accident because I was not all there. Yeah. So that's when I, I knew that that was the time that I needed to ask for help. And it was started the very slow sort of process call out of that really dark void that I was in at that time. And so did you seek professional help straight away or was it something that t took you a bit of time to come around to feeling comfortable doing I, it? 
Yeah, no, I, I pretty much immediately thought meant the medical help. So the first call that I made was to my husband <laughs> yes. and said uh, that I needed to get some help and he encouraged me to book in with my GP who was wonderful and I think everybody should find a, a GP that they really respect and who you feel like gives you the time that you need to talk through any issues that you might be having. So important to find someone who's good like that and then I booked in to see my psychologist as well and that's an ongoing thing for me now I I mean I think I always was aware that I might need to do some work with a psychologist or a counsellor just as an ongoing chin-up but I think everybody should (laughs) you know so often we have a a yearly physical checkup from the GP or our doctors or whatever that might be and I think at the very least, we should all do a yearly tune-up mentally to make sure that we're feeling good in ourselves and, and coping with the stresses of life. And because, it's, you know, life is inherently challenging. It's, we all face different things all of the time. And we need to make sure that we're not only surviving, but thriving in the best way that we can and, you know, all of the different situations that we're in. So true, and some great advice there, Libby. Well, t- tell me about some of the prevention measures that, that you focus on to keep yourself in check from a mental health perspective. I think, well, for me, going through postnatal depression after Poppy was just so valuable in terms of understanding how to make my mental health better more regularly because I think it's just, it really is a spectrum. Like, you can feel good one day and the next day not so good or in the morning you feel okay and then by the afternoon you're pretty wrecked and tired and a bit over it and so for me it's constantly checking in with my mental health checklist which I created around that time and one of the foundations is sleep (laughs) but uh, sleep doesn't always come easily when you have small humans around or you're anxious or you're stressed so trying to make sure that you get as good quality and as much sleep as you can every night is certainly important for me and I think most people. The other checkpoint for me, if I'm starting to feel really stressed or overwhelmed, is understanding if I've been exercising regularly because that's a really important foundation for my mental health as well. Being active, getting out of my head and moving my body just allows me to release those stresses and also release those happy hormones that we talked about earlier and that's such an important thing for me and if I can do that in the sunshine or if I can do that in nature that's obviously a bonus as well going for swims for me is still such a joy so trying to do that as much as I can as well and understanding with very small humans that you can't always do it consistently yeah. uh, as much as I would like and, and being kind with myself for that. But yeah, doing it, making it a priority basically and talking to, working with my husband to make sure that I'm getting the time that I need to do that and, and equally making sure that he's getting the time to do his exercise as well because that's important for him. And then making sure that the ba- very basic, eating fairly well, drinking enough water, not having too much caffeine, though I probably am not great at that all of the time. <laughs> but then other things like random things like setting an alarm to go to bed comes back to that sleep element because I very easily can go down a rabbit hole of, you know, social media and just continuing yeah. to scroll and then all of a sudden it's midnight and I'm like, <laughs> but I had time for myself when the children were asleep. <laughs> it's trying to... I think understanding your tendencies is really important because I know that that can be a tendency for me. So I'm like, I need time by myself. So I just sit in the quiet dark of my bedroom <laughs> and scroll away or alternatively go on a Netflix binge <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and uh, watch as do. much TV as I can, <laughs> but trying to mitigate those things as best as you can. And so for me, setting an alarm to go to bed, making sure that I'm ready for the day to just try and reduce those stressful moments that we have in our days. And then most importantly, well, not most importantly, but as importantly uh, is to have someone that you can talk to, whether that's a counsellor or a psychologist or someone that you trust who will be non-judgmental and loving and supportive in what you're trying to do and, and through 
particularly acutely bad times, um, having those people around you to support you through that is really important. And just on that, I mean, touching on the role that Luke's played throughout your journey with your mental health challenge. I'm so grateful to have him as a partner for lots of reasons. I mean, he can be a bit of a jerk sometimes. (laughs) We challenge each other and we push each other in different ways and I'm so grateful for that side of our relationship. We laugh a lot, which I'm so grateful for that as well. But he he is someone who has experienced mental health challenges through family and personally and obviously through me and He's just growing in his empathy and understanding through those experiences as well. And to have someone who gets it as much as he does is, I think, so important for me. And I think if you're not someone who has necessarily experienced mental health challenges yourself personally, it can be really hard to understand. But to when you are in that situation just to ask questions and that what that's what we in our relationship I think we're getting really good at because you know my experiences aren't his experiences and vice versa and his strengths aren't necessarily my strengths and vice versa and so at the end of the day even though we've been together for 18 years still learning about each other and we're still learning about each other in the dynamic of our family and in the dynamic of his new career pursuits and what I want to do with my life in the future as well. And and that's constantly changing. And I think making sure that you're constantly communicating with your loved ones, whether that is your, your, your partner or, you know, your mom and dad or your siblings or your closest friends is asking questions, you know, really listening to what people are saying and, being curious about those that you care about and I think that's allowed us to to grow together over a long period of time which has been really really lovely actually very well put Libby as we round the home straight you've written a book a memoir beneath the surface that you uh, I think you published just over a year ago do you plan to write more books what other awareness or education stuff are you up to at the moment no no further plans for more books at this stage it's I'm really proud of that memoir. It's funny because I kind of, I don't know, I come from a background of black and white and performance and obviously selling books is, is a business. So you kind of want it to be, in inverted commas, successful. But, and, you know, by no stretch of the imagination is it on any sort of bestseller list. But the feedback that I've gotten from people who've read it has been really powerful for me and is the whole reason that I wanted to to write really openly about my experiences both in swimming and in parenthood and in navigating transitions into you know the workplace and understanding where you want to go with your life and so yeah it's probably taken me a year to be as proud of it as I am but I am genuinely happy that people are resonating with those experiences and might feel seen and might feel heard and might feel more normal in navigating their own challenges that they're facing. And I think through that experience and certainly the experiences of dealing with my own mental health challenges as well as family members, I realised that my passion is in mental health and mental awareness and, and mental illness. And so I guess the next phase of my journey to work on things like the next passion project, I guess, is I'm going to study a bachelor of counselling next year. Wow. So I'm going to, yeah, so yeah, it's going to be interesting. I kind of, kind of have gotten to the point where I need to just stop making excuses for committing to something because I kind of feel like I've been a commitment for the last 10, uh, yeah, almost last 10 years. And I really want to sink my teeth into something. And I've toyed with the idea of study and, was going to be business and then I was going to study teaching and now I think I really really feel driven to learn more about counseling and helping people and talking about mental health because it's a real need in our society I mean this year has just been impossibly hard for so many reasons for so many different people and we can continue to just normalize those discussions and talk more about it and understand that you can be dealing with mental illness and still live very successful lives and make 
impact on, on the world, it, whether it's just your family or friends and or, you know, bigger than that in your community. I think that's a really powerful thing to do and it makes me really excited and kind of miss that feeling. So I'm excited to learn more and get more knowledge and get a degree and sort of see where that next step takes me. Well, good on you. That's really exciting. I'm looking forward to hearing a lot more about you and your journey on that on that path. Are there any other goals that you mentioned that you're really keen to knock off? Um, well, <laughs> I, I kind of have different goals for different areas of my life. I think in the idea of my family, you know, I want to continue to, I mean, it's harder to put a, a definitive goal on family success but creating that environment where we can communicate you know giving the girls as many opportunities as they can have yep. supporting them without being overbearing all of those is <laughs> probably the general gist of what I'm trying to achieve with our family but then I also have personal physical goals so I want oh, yeah. to next year I'm hoping to run a half marathon which for a swimmer is yeah it's a lot <laughs> so we'll see I feel very strongly that I will get there and I've already started kind of semi-training for it. So I'm really excited about that. And with the long-term, much longer-term vision of running a marathon at some point, but also when COVID kind of passes and we're able to travel again, I'd really like to take part in the World Masters competition for swimming. I really miss competing. I really miss getting on the blocks and seeing what you can do physically, which I guess, you know, comes down to why I want to do a half marathon to see if I can actually do it. But yeah, just to have a bit of fun in an environment that I know and understand and really enjoy. So yeah, lots of different little goals. Yeah. Excellent. And Libby, how how can people get in touch with you? You've got a website, I understand you're on maternity leave at the moment, but I mean, if people want to buy your book or get in touch. Yeah. I mean, the best way um, to get in touch is either through my website or probably it's easier through Instagram at this point as well. I'm on social media, (laughs) not all the time, but (laughs) regularly. (laughs) And yeah, I really love talking to people through that medium because you're actually having conversations with people and that's something, it continues to amaze me how powerful human connection is. Uh, and I really like people, it turns out. So, <laughs> you're, you're um, a natural. I think that's a wonderful thing. Oh, thank you. You're very kind. <laughs> well, Libby, thanks very much for sharing that and we appreciate the time that you've spent with us today and sharing your journey so far in, in your life and in your mental health journey. And I guess lastly, I just want to say thank you for your courage to speak up and speak out on such a, an important topic of mental health and your experience. It mustn't be easy, but... Uh, on behalf of everybody, we appreciate it and, and thanks for being such an inspiration and a true leader. Oh, thank you, Sam. That means so much to me and thank you so much for the for the opportunities that you've afforded me so far. I'm really grateful that I get to work with you on the advisory board and to be able to talk more about my experiences and hopefully help other people either get the help that they need or just to feel a little bit more normal. And I think if we can all do that, then yeah, like I said, I think the world will be better off in that way. Well said, Libby, and thanks very much again. What a great conversation. My pleasure. Thank you. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au. And be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening, and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.